1: Hi, welcome to the New Books in Middle East Studies podcast, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Assad, one of the co-hosts of the channel, and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Dr. Christine D. Baker, and we'll be talking about her latest work, Medieval Islamic Sectarianism. Christine Baker received her PhD in History from the University of Texas at Austin in 2013, and her MA in Middle Eastern Studies from the same university. She is currently an associate professor of Middle Eastern history at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania, and her research focuses on Islamic history, specifically the history of sectarian development in Islam, about which we'll be discussing on this episode today. She has also served as the book review editor for the Middle East Medievalists. Her book, which is written in an easily accessible and yet analytically rich style, asks readers to re-examine and revisit how they interpret the formation of sectarian identities and how they talk about the conflicts in the medieval Islamic world. She focuses specifically on the 10th century, which is often deemed the Shi'i century, because it witnessed the rise of two major Shi'i empires, each of which presented a challenge to the existing Sunni Abbasid caliphate. There were the Fatimids of North Africa who came to dominate from the western ends of the caliphate, and the Buyids of Iraq and Iran who came to dominate from the eastern ends. Christine, in writing about both, cautions against reading this history through the lens of modern sectarian identities because, among other things, it risks reinforcing a false narrative of primordial Sunni-Shi'i conflict, and thus she asks us to read this history in its own right. So without further ado, I now welcome Christine Baker to our podcast. Welcome, Christine. Thank you for joining us today.
0: Hello, Asad. Thank you for inviting me to join you today.
1: It is a pleasure to have you on this podcast, and I'm really excited to discuss this book. And as I'm sure you know, we have a tradition on our podcast to begin by asking our guests to share a little bit about their own intellectual history and growth. So we, before we begin to talk about the book, uh, I was wondering if you would be able to share a little bit about your trajectory and what led you to writing this book, deciding to pursue scholarship in medieval Islamic and Middle, Middle Eastern history, and you know, why the Fatimids?
0: <laughs> um, I never have a great answer to this question. Um, I So I studied history in college, um, and I randomly took a Middle East history class. and this was back in the in the mid 90s. Um, and I just found it fascinating, so I decided to take more classes and I thought, well, maybe I'll take Arabic. Um, and then I, I went to the Middle East and I studied at Birzeit University in Palestine. And that's when I learned that, you know, I learned that my Arabic was terrible. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay, this is going to take a lot of work. We've all um, gone through that phase. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Especially the difference between Fusha and like, you know, yes. and dialect. Yeah. Um, and I just, it kind of just like. It's like a rock rolling down a hill. Like I kept just being like, oh, I'll take this other class and this class, and the more I learned, the more fascinated I became. And so after um, after college, I did a Fulbright in Jordan, um, where I studied uh, uh, Islamic mysticism um, with a Sufi sheikh there. Um, so I think that I was always interested in sort of uh, Muslim religious identity. Um, from different perspectives. I don't know that I would have articulated it in that way when I was in my 20s. Um, But that was definitely something I was interested in. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. So I just (laughs) kind of like got some jobs. um, uh, And I eventually ended up working in a nonprofit in D.C. that did education and advocacy related to Israel-Palestine. And so when I actually went to grad school, my whole goal was like, I want... I want to improve my Arabic so I can get a job at a bigger nonprofit, one that maybe will inv- involve travel to the Middle East. Like that was my whole goal. And so I did my, I, I had only applied for a master's. That was my only um, goal. And so I was doing my master's at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies at the University of Texas. Um, and my main goal was to just, just get my Arabic better. And the Arabic program at UT is, it's really amazing. Um, and so I learned so much while I was there. But then, of course, you know, taking these other classes with some of the other excellent faculty at the university. um, I think that I remembered that I was a big nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, you know, I wasn't sure that I wanted to sort of go the academia route. I knew that it was long and the chance of getting a tenure track job was difficult. Um, And I was basically told by one of my mentors when it came to applying for the PhD that, what did he say? You can't, you can't go if you don't apply, but you don't have to go if you apply. Um, And so it was really the application process for the PhD that led me to kind of figure out what it was that I wanted to do. And I had written my master's on, um, on sort of the the foundation of the, 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 the like how they went from sort of this like millenarian underground movement to a state, Um, And that had partially happened because I had uh, spent a summer in Yemen studying Arabic and uh, I had just gotten really interested in Yemen. Um, And there's not tons written about Yemen, actually, especially medieval Yemen. And so what I found was actually about Fatimid control in Yemen. Um, And that was the first time I was I mean, I'd learned about the Fatimids, you know, in all of my survey courses. But that was the first time I really started digging into them. Um, and then when I started thinking about the Buyids, it just occurred to me that it was really interesting that we didn't bring these two Shi'i dynasties into conversation very often. Um, there are, of course, a couple of like really excellent articles that will talk about sort of the Fatimids and the Buyids. Um, Paul Walker has one about sort of like gifts that they exchanged. Um, but there just wasn't a lot of scholarship that looked At both of these dynasties together and what they were doing. And so that became really fascinating for me. And so um, I guess that's why I decided to focus on those two. And then it it was, you know, as I'm reading the sources for it as as a student, it just became really apparent to me that when you only looked at 10th century sources those sources weren't that concerned with the fact that these were Shi'i dynasties. And so I was convinced that I was just wrong (laughs) for a long time, (laughs) that I had missed something, you know, that like, obviously I was was just doing something wrong. Um, But, you know, I just, I kept pursuing it and I had really great mentorship at the university. Um, I was sort of in an interesting situation that none of my committee members actually work on exactly what it is that I wanted to do. Um, and that was sort of neat for me because Denise Spellberg, who was my dissertation advisor, um, her, uh, her best known book is her book on Aisha, um, the prophet's wife, and sort of like her legacy um, and how she's remembered. Um, so you get this like historical memory piece from this and sort of like how we talk about Aisha over time. Um, and then while I was in grad school, she was finishing up her second book, which is called, uh, Thomas Jefferson's Quran, which is literally about, um, how the United States founding fathers understood Islam, um, which is a massive topic change, obviously. Um, but then my master's advisor, um, was Kamran Aghaim and he works on modern Iran. And so I think that was also where I got my interest in doing something Shi'i related um, and I don't know, it just kind of it worked out. I, I I feel like a lot of it was serendipity, but I think that's true for a lot of research. Like I didn't come in with like, I didn't like start my master's or the PhD with like, I'm gonna research the Faltimids. Uh it was kind of I started exploring and you know, I just sort of was led to these different sources and what I thought was kind of an interesting view of the era.
1: Wow, thanks. Thank you for sharing all of that. It seems like all of the Little pieces fell right into place for you. Um, And this is a great transition into our our next question, which is about the book itself. Um, So your first chapter opens up with a discussion on the emergence of Sunnism as a quote-unquote orthodoxy. And I think this is a crucial theme to start with because there seems to be an overwhelming trend both in the public sphere and in academia that this concept that we call normative or orthodox Sunni Islam or Sunnism was always there and that all all other denominations sort of just emerged as offshoots. And you write that, quote, it is more accurate to view the early Muslim community as espousing a diversity of formulations of Islam that eventually, over centuries, narrowed into the sectarian identities that we can recognize today, end quote. Would you be able to elaborate on that for our listeners a little bit more?
0: Sure. So I feel like in my first classes about Middle Eastern history, that the way that I learned about the emergence of Sunni and Shi'i Islam was like, uh, it was sort of like a tree that, you know, we start off, we're all together, we're at sort of at the trunk of the tree, and then the Prophet Muhammad dies, there's this conflict, and then we have these two branches that never ever meet again. Um, and I understand from... From sort of like the standpoint of teaching history, why sometimes this is what we do because it's it's so complicated um, to sort of look at these sort of like the multiplicity of early Islamic identities. That so I think it would just be very difficult for sort of like a beginner audience uh, to learn about. I think about this a lot because I teach a lot of freshmen, <laughs> so I think about how it is that like you sort of you 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 give, you give students a narrative and it's a little simplistic. And as soon as they understand that, you're like, okay, now let's complicate that. Let's, let's see the ways that it doesn't quite fit into those categories. And so the more that I studied early Islamic history, the more it was just really clear that for, you know, decades, if not at least a couple of centuries, Muslims were trying to figure out how to practice and be the best possible Muslim Um, And they mostly agreed that you should follow the Prophet's example. But what did that mean? Um, And how do we decide? Uh, It was just clear that people had come up with, you know, without the Prophet Muhammad there to guide them, that they had come up with different answers to those questions. Um, And so there are so many different kinds of movements that we would generally characterize as heterodox. Um, that are around, even before the Abbasids come to power in 750. And in the book, I rely a lot on the scholarship of William F. Tucker, um, who did this, who wrote a book called Mahdi's and Melanarians, who did this, a great job sort of documenting these different, um, these just different religious movements. And so it became kind of clear to me that like, rather than like, you know, a trunk of a tree with two branches, that it's, it's, I don't have a great analogy. It's more like a shrub. There are lots of branches, (laughs) you know, Um, and that it it actually takes it's like if you have the shrub and it like consolidates into two branches. But much, much later that you actually have all of these different opinions. And it's not it's over time and in part through state sponsorship of specific forms of uh, sectarian identity that you actually have different kinds of religious identities coalesce into sort of distinct categories. And so then I became really interested in that um, process, you know, because I feel like when we learn about early Islamic history, we always, of course, learn about, we learn about the Harajis and we learn, you know, we learn about Shi'ism and we might even learn about different kinds of Shi'ism, but just, there are just so many different kinds of religious movements and many of them fit into these categories, but awkwardly. Um, And it also ignores, you know, all of the different kinds of super interesting Zoroastrian, like offshoot groups that uh, Patricia Crono worked on in her last book about, uh, I think it's called Nativist Prophets in Iran. Um, And anyways, I just became fascinated with this and sort of wanting to think about how it was that we thought about when Sunni Islam became quote-unquote orthodox, when it became sort of dominant or normative. And so while I was doing research for the dissertation, which became the book, um, part of it was just reading everything I could find that talked about um, uh, Muslim religious identity in the medieval period and and thinking about how it is that different scholars had dated um, the emergence of Sunni Sunni Islam and when they considered it to be sort of a, uh, quote-unquote you know uh Muslim orthodoxy
1: well that's a great transition into our next question because when we talk about orthodoxy and its emergence in history right another interesting point you bring up I think is how we as scholars date that emergence um to a systematic doctrine and you write that depending on whether we rely rely on texts or on institutions as markers for that emergence our findings will differ greatly um sometimes by centuries um and it seems that you base your analysis more on institutions and on particular texts, arguing that the emergence of Sunni Islam can be dated to the 11th or 12th century common era at the earliest. Um, and in addition to that, you also use um, particular terminologies such as proto-Shi'i and proto-Sunni. Um, so I was wondering if you could clarify for, for our listeners what exactly you meant by these categories um, and how, how they impact the the way you conducted your history.
0: Yeah, so... Um, as I was reading, um, what many brilliant people have written about early Islamic history, it just, I noticed that there was just this massive disagreement, um, that sometimes you would see people talking about, um, sort of the emergence of this, this sort of dominance of Sunni orthodoxy. And they would be talking about it, um, happening in the eighth or early ninth century, and then sometimes you would see uh, scholars talking about it in the eleventh or the twelfth century and then I wanted to explore sort of why why was it this difference and so I started reading through and just kind of trying to characterize like you know how it was that they argued that Sunni Islam was dominant so because it's not exactly that I'm not dating the emergence of Sunni Islam to the eleventh or twelfth century they were definitely people who identified as Sunnis but like when do we consider Sunni Islam to be sort of the dominant form of Islam? Um, And for me, that doesn't happen until there are mechanisms to basically spread um, and, uh, to a degree, police concepts of what Islam is. And I don't really think that happens until um, probably about almost the 11th century when you have like sort of the the dominance of the madrasa. and you know I'm I'm basing a lot of this on on some of the earlier work by you know George MacDesey, who works on the on the madrasa and I'm super influenced by Richard Bullett's work um, Islam the View from the Edge and his work on conversion in the medieval period and just in terms of looking at how was it that regular Muslims like not religious scholars learned about Islam and Muslim practice. You know, so there are definitely religious scholars that are out there that are talking about what it, how it is that they define uh, uh, Sunni orthodoxy. But until there's a mechanism to take the debates of those scholars and spread them to, you know, just regular Muslims, um, can we really call Sunni orthodoxy dominant? Um, and so that's why I use the terms proto-Sunni and proto-Shii. I was trying to sort of give a sense of the fact that it, while we might look back on these people and think, "Oh yes, these people are like, this is where we can see the origins of what became Shiism, that it wasn't exactly the same. You know, they didn't exa- they didn't believe exactly the same things as like a modern Sunni or a modern uh, Shia. So like, for example, you have a bunch of people who supported you know, Ali, um, for and his caliphate, you know, this is where we get the term Shi'at Ali, the, the, the followers or the partisans of Ali. But there is an entire sort of thread within scholarship about like, when did this go from a political movement to a religious movement? Um, and when you're looking at different kinds of what we would call heterodox movements from the Late seventh and early eighth century, you can see the origins of a lot of Shi'i ideas in lots of different kinds of movements. Like it took time for things, for ideas to develop, like this idea that the Imam was, should be considered infallible, this idea that uh, they're only gonna follow Imams who are descendants of Ali and uh, the Prophet's daughter Fatima. Um, these are things that develop over time. And even with Sunnis, you have the same thing. Like the Sunnis are fighting bitterly over which hadith they consider to be accepted and trustworthy, um, you know, and eventually what they consider to be canonical. Um, these processes took a really long time. So I tried to use the term proto Sunni and proto Shi'i for at least the first century or so um, after the death of the Prophet to just give this indication. That it like, even though we might trace the origins of Sunni and Shi'i identity back to these individuals and movements, the things that they believed are not necessarily the same as what we would associate with Sunni and Shia Muslims uh today, or even you know, in the 11th century.
1: Um well, that's a there's a lot to to chew over there, and thank you for that. Um, so when we get to the first Shi'i empire, the the Fatimids, who were Ismaili and who who ruled large numbers of Sunnis, um, in your work you analyze their rhetoric to show that quote they were aware of their audience and carefully planned how how they would claim authority in a way that would be acceptable to the broadest possible audience. Um, they even deployed historians to make a didactic case against the Abbasids to make them appear impious uh, in front of this in front of this diverse. Proud. And so I, I have two sort of mini questions to that. Number one, can we say the Fatimids espoused a sort of, pan, quote unquote, pan-Islamic discourse, for lack of better term, as opposed to a strictly sectarian one? And the other question is, can you talk a little bit about the, quote unquote, Sunni opposition to the Abbasids in the 10th century? That What form did it take? Or
0: to the Abbasids? or oh, the, sorry, Fatimids? the
1: Fatimids? Sorry, uh, okay. Fatimids. Yeah. Can you talk a little about the Sunni opposition to the Fatimids in the 10th century? What form did that take and why is it significant to your argument?
0: Sure. So, first of all, we have to keep in mind when we're talking about the Fatimids that they declare their caliphate in 909, so the very beginning of the 10th century. Uh, But they had existed as sort of this like underground, Melanarian secret missionary movement for quite a while beforehand. It's hard to date how long, um, but for quite a while before that. And this is the period when, as far as we can tell the Middle East is only starting to become predominantly Muslim. You know, Richard Bullitt does this really uh, amazing work on conversion in the medieval Islamic world. Um, And I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but um, if anyone listening has not read that, it's really great. (laughs) Um, And he basically dates um, the... Sort of like the tipping point of when the when the Middle East became majority Muslim to about the early 10th century. So, um, so you have this you have this sort of Muslim world that is that is changing. Um, that you have a lot more converts to Islam, and many of them are coming from different kinds of ethnic backgrounds. You know, they're they're non Arabs. Many many of them are Persian, um, and and so they're bringing all of these different influences um, into Islam and we see the degree to which the Abbasids they very much have to grapple with this. Um, the Abbasids are um, they are incredibly influenced for example by, um, uh, by, by sassanid ideas of kingship um, and so the Fatimids begin to sort of follow along in that tradition while also making this argument that the Abbasids are terrible Muslims, <laughs> um, the Abbasids aren't going through a particularly great moment in the early 10th century in terms of sort of their their own control. Their you know, so they still technically control sort of North Africa, you know, most of what we think of the Central Middle Eastern lands into Iran up into inter Central Asia, but their actual control of those territories are generally through. Um, other dynasties that kind of pay them some allegiance, um, and the Abbasids have never been particularly well liked in North Africa, which is where the Abbasid uh, where the Fatimids declare their caliphate. And so the Fatimids they decide to to use this use this discontent um, with the Abbasids to basically say, you know, we are way better Muslims than the Abbasids are. Um, And so they use sort of as this foil, this guy named Ziyadat Allah, Allah, uh, or is it Ziyadat Allah, Ziyadat Ali? Yeah, Ziyadat Allah. Sorry, it's been a while. Um, And he is the Aglubid ruler at the time. So the Aglubids were uh, a client state of the Abbasids, and they rule in North Africa. And they basically, the Fatimids, when they talk about why they should be in power, they don't make distinctly Shi'i arguments they make Muslim arguments. You know, they talk about Ziyadat Allah being basically a terrible Muslim. They're not attacking him because he's Sunni. They're not attacking him because he doesn't, you know, like Ali ibn Abi Talib enough. They're attacking him because they're saying that he's a drunk and he's corrupt and he's a womanizer and he murdered his own father and he's not a good Muslim. Um, And they very carefully, rhetorically link the Aglabids with the Abbasids, so they basically say this guy is terrible, um, and look at how the Abbasids support him, um, and so they're able, sort of like they kind of position themselves not as Shi'i rulers. But just as Muslim rulers, you know, they point at the caliph. The Abbasid caliph at this time was al-Muqtadir. Um, he came to power in 908, so the year before the, um, the Fatimids uh, claimed their caliphate. And he's only 13 when he becomes caliph. Um, and this is the first time this has happened, that you have such a young um, caliph. And he's basically picked because he can be controlled by his court. Um, and they are just saying that this is like, any Muslim can look at this and know that this is not right. Um, And so, yeah, they really make their argument based on we are the right Muslim rulers. We follow Islamic law. Um, We are um, sort of like we walk in the path of the Prophet Muhammad and the original Islamic conquests. When you look at the way that we are sort of like retaking this territory from these terrible um, Abbasid clients. Um, And even when they when they talk about um, sort of like the when the Fatimids first um were coming to North Africa. Um the first Fatimid Caliph, um, his name is Al-Mahdi, he uh he's basically he's 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 basically sneaking into North Africa. He's he's hiding, he's posing as a um as a merchant. And in their story about this journey that he takes to finally get him um into North Africa, where he declares his caliphate it's this rhetorical trope that they use that at every turn he is aided by abbasid officials that abbasid officials recognize that he is sort of like the better muslim leader so they're not in any real way making a sectarian argument they're just trying to say we are much we are much better muslims than what you are used to
1: <laughs> well now let's let's get to the buyids who ruled over iraq and iran and with them, we see the the emergence of the first non Arab Shii dynasty to conquer even Baghdad after after the rise of Islam um You write about them that their appeals to authority did not fit neatly into either categories of Persian or Shii and it seems that this dynasty was under even more pressure to stress the continuity of its rule with that of the Abbasids or at least to say that they had they had the same legitimacy um as the Abbasids had and something that I found particularly fascinating and very surprising um, in this book, which I had never read anywhere else before, is that one of history's most famous Arab poets, al-Mutanabbi, also seems to have had a role in legitimating the rule of the Buyids. So could you talk a little bit about that for, for our listeners? Because that just blew my mind.
0: Sure. First, I want to give just a little bit of background on the Buyids. I find that most even people that work on um, Islamic history don't necessarily know that much about the Buyids. Um, But they are a, um, they're a tribe from northern Iran, just south of the Caspian Sea, this mountainous region that is known as the Dalem. Um, And the Dalemites are sort of recorded in Islamic history as these, like, warlike mountain people. Um, They're kind of, I mean, not to make light of it but it's like they're depicted as like the stereotypical like hicks of uh, of Iran <laughs> you know that and so it's really fascinating cuz the buyids are basically working as mercenaries for abbasid clients and they just kind of start to take over power but they conquer baghdad but they kind of realize that they don't have the legitimacy to, you know, get rid of the caliph or declare that they are the caliph. So they keep the caliph around. And so they are the first ones that kind of establish this pattern, which we see recur in Islamic history of having some kind of military rule um, uh, besides sort of the religious authority of the Abbasid caliph. And so... Depending on who's in power, sometimes the Abbasid Caliph is able to sort of marshal more power and sort of confront whoever these military rules or rulers are, and sometimes he's not. Um, and so the, the Buyids, you know, they're ruling and um, they control, it's a triumvirate of three brothers, so they have sort of like three uh, cities that they control, but Baghdad is one of them. And in Baghdad, they are ruling sort of alongside the abbasid caliph like he's under their like actual control um but they like trot him out for ceremonies and he still has you know he still has influence and so it's just it's it's really interesting and we can kind of see how especially under one particular Buddha, uh, Buyid ruler who's uh whose title was uh, adud Adawla, he you can kind of see how he is trying to sort of put pieces in place so that he can start to claim the kind of authority that the Abbasid Caliph has. And so for for that, as a Dalamite, as you know, this sort of this Persianate tribe from Northern Iran, he both has to make these claims to sort of an elite Persian heritage so that he can claim that he is a descendant of the Sassanid shahs. But he also starts to make these claims that he is, like, secretly Arab. <laughs> um, and so one of the ways he does this is he has a history wrote, written about the origin of the Dalamites. And in this history, they talk about this, this you know, this one wing of this one Arab tribe, the ben who. who we don't know why, but they made their way up to northern Iran, and they settled down there. And so the Dalamites are actually the secret product of these this Arab tribe, basically, you know, having kids with the, the local Persianate peoples who live there. So that's one way in which he kind of starts to claim like, oh, look, there's this historical link. We can totally say we're Arab. Um but then he does, he really uses very traditional Arab means of claiming this Arab identity. And one of the ways he does that is by having Al-Mutanebbi, you know, again, this like incredible um, um, Arab poet, come to his court and write um, poetry about, um, about him. And, the, the, and some of the poems that... Um, Al-Mu'tanembi writes for Aduda Dawla. And in this, I'm relying a lot on the work of Margaret Larkin, who, you know, I've looked at, of course, I've looked at the Arabic translations of all of these poems and I've worked on them myself, but poetry is very difficult and Larkin's, Larkin's work is very, very helpful. Um, but basically, Al-Mu'tanembi, in his poems, he does talk about the fact that Aduda Dawla is Persian and it's almost as if he is making sense of Adud ad persian Persianness for an Arab audience. Um, so when Al Mutanebi is talking about um, Adud ad there's a poem called "The Gap of Bavan." Um, he uses really common symbols of Persian nobility, um, such as the lion and the sun, to describe Adud ad and his sons. Um and so this is not really surprising um uh, because again Amutnabi is um you know he's sort of emphasizing this this Persian identity um but at the same time Amutnabi basically he uses him himself as like this example Arab of being like you know I too was very uncomfortable about visiting this like this Persian court um, and Bavan is this uh, it's basically a glade that Al Mutanebi passed through um, on his way to southeastern Iran it was it's a very beautiful place and this is when Adud al Daula was ruling in the city of Fars um, and so he talks about how as an Arab traveler he feels you know. Alienated in this Persian land. He doesn't speak the language. He's a stranger. Um, he basically uses the whole poem to talk about how weird he feels about being in this Persian territory. But then at the end of the poem, he basically um, he basically compares um Aduda Daula to a great Arab ruler. And he says, the way I actually felt in Persia is how I would hope to feel in Damascus. That, you know, Al Mutanebi is describing these scenes of uh, Arab hospitality. Um, and he is, he's basically explaining how Aduda Daula has brought him comfort in this Persian environment. He ends the poem by basically saying, Um, When I see Abu Shuja, which is Adudadala's given name, I forget about everyone else and this place, for people and the world are but a road to one who has no match among men. (laughs) Um, I trained myself on poetry on them, just as one first learns to charge with a lance that has no point. So basically, he's saying, "Sure, I have been a poet for all of these great Arab rulers because he had worked for like the Hamdanids in Aleppo, but it wasn't. He didn't really understand like the point of greatness until he met a dude, a dawla. And so, even though he's Persian, all you Arabs, it's totally fine. (laughs) So it's just it's really fascinating to me that (laughs) that yeah, you have al mutanebi doing this work on helping." to Arabize um, Adud Adawla. Um, And Adud Adawla is like definitely trying, like he's trying to take on this Arab identity, but he's really blending it with this Persian identity that he's also trying to claim. So he also does this thing where he, um, Adud Adawla famously visits uh, the palace of Darius in Persepolis, you know, this ancient Persian um, uh, capital, ceremonial capital. And he brings with him a Zoroastrian priest to have the, the, uh, the Persian inscriptions read to him. Um, Cause he didn't necessarily speak Persian. We're not sure. Um, we know that his fathers who were or his father and uncles, the ones who founded the Buya dynasty did not speak Arabic. Um, so it's probably that it's, it's probably true that uh, Aduda Dautla, I mean, he spoke Persian and Arabic, but he would not have necessarily been able to read this older Persian. Um, And he leaves inscriptions at Persepolis, which is, again, sort of this, you know, sort of this, this way of inscribing yourself on Persian history. But the thing that's super fascinating is that he leaves the inscriptions in Arabic, Um, which. When I first read that, I definitely thought it was like that seemed almost transgressive to leave Arabic inscriptions at Persepolis, but when you look at it in the context of a lot of the other stuff that he's doing, it's just really clear that he is trying to blend together um, this, both this Arab identity and this Persian identity. Um, And I I just want I know I'm going on a bit long, but the one thing I also want to talk about is the big way that he did this is um, he, he claimed to be a descendant of one of the Sasanid shahs. Um, And, you know, scholars have always talked about the Buyids and their claims to Persianness and their claims to Sasanid identity. This is something that has definitely been commented on. Um, but there were never really, like, I felt like there were never sort of great analyses done of this, um, because I was wondering why he had chosen, so he says that he's a descendant of Bahram Gur, um, this particular Sasanid Shah. And I was just curious about why Bahram Gur um, and everything that I had read had just been like, well, you know, he just picked someone or, you know, gur is, it means like, a, it's like an onager. It's like a, a thing that they hunt. Um, and so, you know, it was just about, you know, of course, everybody loves hunting and hunting is important for like, you know, prowess with hunting is important for establishing kingship. But like, as I started to dig in to, I actually was using a tabari to basically say like, how did people think about Bahram gur in the 10th century? Um and Bahram Gur is this incredibly fascinating figure that basically he is known for being sent by his father to be raised um by Arab clients, the, the Lakhmid tribe. Um, and so there are these famous stories about Bahram Gore being breastfed, you know, by both Arab and Persian women. And so, again, you have this figure of Bahram Ghor that brings together this Arabness and this Persian-ness, and then this story about how, you know, it's Bahram Ghor's um, brother who uh, who becomes the Shah, and then he's overthrown, and so Bahram Ghor basically leading an Arab army comes and retakes the Sasanid throne. And again, I just thought these were fascinating ways that you can see um, Adud Adawla trying to Mold these different forms of identity in a way that maximizes his own authority and legitimacy using all of the possible uh, claims that he can possibly make at the time.
1: Wow, that was incredible. Thank you so much for that. And I think, um, you know, a lot of these things may seem paradoxical, paradoxical to us as moderns, but, you know, in, in a, in a pre modern medieval Islamic context, you know, these ostensible contradictions between Arabness and Persianness may not have, um, they may not have had those same sensibilities um, that we do. And I, I, th- I think that's, you know, that, that brings me to my next question about, you know, how we construct history um, through historical memory, right? And the degree to which we project backwards our own sort of presuppositions onto the past. You have this phenomenal quote in your book, which I actually would like to quote um, here Um, That quote, historical memory includes how we remember the past as well as how we interpret representations of the past. Mainly, it means that we need to remember that histories are written within specific contexts and often serve specific purposes. Even if past historians aimed to be objective, they had their own biases that informed their writing. Thus, rather than viewing history as some kind of truth that we can discover about the past, historians more often view historical sources as a lens through which we can interpret how past peoples saw themselves and their world. Historical memory is not fiction, but it has been constructed by society, usually to emphasize something that the society values. So my question is, end quote, my question is, how has this historical memory or the concept of historical memory shaped the contours of Muslim sectarianism, and uh, how have you found that to shape your work?
0: Sure. So I think part of it is some of what we talked about earlier, and that is modern Sunnis and Shi'is do trace the origins of their identities back to the 7th century um, when, uh, when there was this debate over who should succeed the Prophet Muhammad after his death. And so because they trace their identities back to that, the choices that are made in the wake of that event, it makes it look like Sunni and Shi'i identity as it is today was inevitable. Um, And that because we are living through a fairly sectarianized moment um, in Muslim history, that sort of that conflict... Um, is also inevitable. And so when they go back and they think through early Islamic history, um, it becomes a little teleological that they are looking for the ways in which um, uh, early Sunnis and early Shia didn't get along or fought or conflicted. They're looking for hostility between these movements. um, And they're sort of choosing the things that seem to lead to where we are today. Um, And I think this affects how we view early Islamic history, that we do often um, see it as, you know, sort of this, you know, the branching off and Sunnis and Shi'is, like, basically, you know, never the twain shall meet. Um, And the other way I think it affects this is that after the fall, especially of the Buyids, and sort of in the waning days of the Fatimids, um, the Seljuks uh, take over in Baghdad. And they also keep the Abbasid Caliph around as um, not a puppet. I mean, he has power, but they are a military dynasty ruling over that. And one of the ways in which they say they have the authority to take control is that they say that they are saving the Caliph from these like terrible Shi'is. And so this begins, you know, sort of, we, we are, we often call this period the Sunni revival, um, to follow the Shi'i century. Um, but this brings in this period of real sectarian emphasis, um, sort of like in the ways in which the Seljuks and the Abbasids talk about their legitimacy and authority. And they talk about these previ- previous dynasties being illegitimate because of their Shi'iness, And so those ideas infuse 12th, 13th, 14th century histories of um, earlier Islamic history. So like when 12th and 13th century historians, Islamic historians are writing about the 9th and 10th century, they depict this period in an incredibly sectarian manner. And what I have found is that a lot of the worst abuses of sectarianism that they mention in these later sources are not at all (laughs) mentioned in the 10th century sources, even when you focus on um, how Sunni religious scholars have responded to a dynasty like the Fatimids and the Buyids. These Sunni religious scholars are not actually that concerned with, with the Shi'i identity of these other, um, of these powers. They don't really, they don't, they don't support them, but they don't attack them largely on sectarian grounds. And so one example of this that I think is really interesting is that in, um, oh, in uh, later sources about, uh, about the Buyids, They talk about, um, so when I'm talking about like Ibn al-Jawzi, Ibn al-Athir, Ibn al-Kathir, so people, uh, historians writing in the 13th and 14th centuries, Mm -hmm. they talk about the Buyids ordering public commemorations of Shi'i religious holidays in Baghdad, and this leading to widespread riots. Um, There's no mention of anything like that in 10th century sources either whether they're written by Sunnis or the Shia. And I know it's definitely possible that things don't survive, but I think that if Adud Adawla was sponsoring widespread Shiite rituals, that he would have had his historians mention that, because right. he would have been really proud of that. Um, in the 10th century sources, you do see references to um, social and political unrest in Baghdad. You see riots, but a lot of this is based on the fact that the city itself, like there's it has just sort of deteriorated um, so much because as the Abbasids don't really have a lot of control, basically um, Iraq is being fought over by different kinds of client groups. And it just leads to a tremendous amount of political instability, which leads to you know food shortages and all kinds of problems. And so they'll talk about these riots in Baghdad, but they're never, ever about, they're never anti-Shii. Um, they are generally economic. They are generally because people are riding because of food. Um, and I just found that sort of that difference really fascinating that I can't find references from the 10th century about so this, these being really sectarian. Um, and instead, even Sunni authors will talk about how they're actually really relieved that the Buyids have like reestablished power. So at least, you know, sort of, you know farming and trade can recommence you know people can go back to their lives they might not like who their new rulers are but they they are happy that say like Aduda Daula one of the things that he does is he says everybody who owns property along uh the Tigris and the Euphrates those properties have all been destroyed from war you all have to rebuild um so that this city has its has its like you know historical greatness restored um And so I just think it's important sometimes, you know, when we are looking back, even at medieval sources, but they're not written at the same time as the period that we're studying, that we have to realize that, like, you know, somebody writing in the 14th century about the 10th century, that's a 400 year difference. (laughs) You know, I don't necessarily have a tremendous amount of insight about uh, U.S. history. or It wasn't a U.S., but, you know, North, North American history in the 1600s. Um and so just realize that like we can't necessarily trust all of the um all of the conclusions that they're coming to and that they are very much influenced by their own historical time period. I don't think that they're trying to like mislead and make things up, but they are presenting a particular, you know, historical trajectory uh that makes sense to them. Uh and for them that would have been a very sectarian narrative and I just don't think that that was as present in the 10th century itself.
1: So one final question before we close the discussion, and this is sort of a teaser for our listeners. Um, (laughs) Could you share with us a little bit about your current or future projects? And if there's something that you're working on that we can look forward to reading or hearing about soon.
0: Okay, so I'm working on two projects. Um, One is actually an edited volume, and I'm working on this with Eric Hanna, who's at Florida Atlantic University. Um, And he wrote a book on the Buyids and the Seljuks called Putting the Caliph in His Place, sort of about uh, the power of the Caliph under the Buyids and the Seljuks. Um, But we're working on an edited volume about this concept of diversity in medieval Islam. Um, And so we're bringing together different scholars who work on um, different kinds of uh, religious, political, and ethnic movements in the, oh, like 9th to 12th century or so. Um, and we're trying to make it aimed at an audience of like probably uh, uh, sort of graduate students um, or people who work on medieval history more broadly but not necessarily the Middle East to try and kind of uh, give a counterpoint to this this narrative of sort of Sunni dominance um, something that like you could assign in a class, like if we're re- we're reading a lot about early Islamic history, um, which tends to be very Sunni, you know, focused, that there would be this other thing that you could read that would let you know, like, hey, this is a lot more complicated. <laughs> um, and then the other project I'm working on is really different. <laughs> um, in a way, I think it must have been subconsciously inspired by my advisor switching to working on Muslims in America. Um, because I'm actually working with two colleagues, one who does uh, American immigration history and one who does, as uh, a sociologist, who her first book is on uh, Muslims in the American military. And we are collecting oral histories of Muslims in Pennsylvania, um, specifically in the relatively small town that we live in. Um, there is a surprisingly large Muslim population here in part because of the university and in part because we have a regional medical center here. Um, And we, and the community that we have here is very interesting because it is very Saudi dominated Um, in part because we get a lot of Saudi students here. Um, And we also have quite a lot of African-American Muslims who are at this university coming from either Philadelphia or Pittsburgh um and it makes for just a very interesting um muslim community here in um i live in a town of about 30,000 people about an hour and 10 minutes outside of pittsburgh um and so we're trying to sort of get at this idea of um muslim identity Outside of the sort of the major cities of the United States, a lot of the a lot of the really excellent work that's been done on Muslim um, Muslim history in the United States it predominantly focuses on major centers of of uh, of Muslim uh, settlement. I don't know, uh, and so we want to sort of look at what is it like to be a Muslim living in you know a small a small town in Western Pennsylvania. Um, and so we are eventually going to collect some oral histories that look at Muslims in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia as well to kind of do a comparison more broadly, but, but yeah, so that is another project that I am, uh, in the early stages of we are, um, we're collecting oral histories now.
1: Well, thank you for that, Christina. I'm eagerly awaiting, um, to hear that because I was, I'm involved in oral history projects here in Brooklyn, but, you know, we'll talk, talk about that, um elsewhere thank you so much for joining us here um thank you for allowing us to interview you um folks dr christine d baker (laughs) medieval islamic sectarianism get your hands on that book thank you christine for joining us today
0: thank you so much asad this was really fun